When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this Friday episode of Intelligence Squared. A quick reminder before we go to this week's episode that Intelligence Squared is back this autumn for in-person debates and discussions. From whether we should treat China as an adversary rather than a partner, to Yanis Varoufakis and Gillian Tett debating whether we can fix capitalism, you can buy tickets for our in-person events in London or for the live stream where we'll be streaming TV quality broadcast into your home or on your mobile device. To find out more, visit intelligencesquared.com slash attend. And now let's go to this week's episode with Ed Miliband and Manveen Rana. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Ed Miliband. He's a man who needs no introduction. I'm sure nobody's forgotten his time as leader of the Labour Party from 2010 till 2015, and before that as Climate Change Secretary in the Cabinet. In October 2017, Ed and his co-host, Jeff Lloyd, launched the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. Everyone's a podcaster now. But his has been remarkably, and I can say this with experience, his has been remarkably successful with over 10 million downloads. And it was awarded Podcast of the Year by the Broadcasting Press Guild in 2018. Since April 2020, he's returned to the front bench as the Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industry. And his new book, I can't recommend it enough, is Go Big, How to Fix Our World. Ed, welcome it's a joy to be able to talk to you about this. Well, it's great to be interviewed by a fellow podcaster. <laughs> All the charm. Firstly, I really wanted to ask, how did this book and the podcast come about? We all sort of saw you at, on the front line of politics and then suddenly there you were in a totally different guise. Suddenly I disappeared. Thanks to the electorate, I uh, I disappeared. Yeah, I mean, look, I lost the election in 2015 and then... I wanted to stay in politics. I wanted to stay being a, an MP. I'm the MP for Doncaster North. I wanted to stay partly because of my constituents, partly because I felt I had more to say about the country. And 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 to be honest with you, I I struggled to work out how to find a forum for ideas. And then Jeff Lloyd, who'd interviewed me in the 2015 general election, came to me and said in 2017 and said, "Look, I know it's maybe a mad idea." He said to it's a colleague of mine, you know, would Ed be interested in doing a podcast where I'll play the everyman and he can be a nerd? I, if I'm honest, I was hesitant. I thought, you know, I'm not a broadcaster. What's this going to be like? And so I agreed to do a pilot. And, and you know, I, I, Jeff deserves massive credit because, you know, he he saw that there was a, a, a kind of market for people interested in big ideas, interested in not in not as party political a way as I would have presented them as when I was Labour leader. And, uh, you know, there were great ideas out there, including by talking to people from different countries that were trying different things. So uh, I'm, you know, eternally grateful to him for having suggested it. What's interesting is that this book does tackle a lot of big issues. And for once, unusually, it offers solutions. It sort of reads like a manifesto when 
you're no longer running for, for, for leader. Is it a, a book sort of born out of regret? Is there a sense of this, these are the things you would have liked to have done? I think it's born out of defeat. I think that's definitely true in the sense of I lost the election. And if I'd been prime minister, I probably wouldn't have had time to, to write the book. And, I, you know, in a sense, I wouldn't have had cause to in the same way. I think it's also born of trying to learn. You know, I felt when I was leader that I had a big analysis of the problems of the country, inequality, you know, the the problems of markets, all of these issues that the country faced, but maybe not big enough solutions. And in a sense, the the the, the podcast helped me to go looking for those ideas and look to other countries to see what they were doing and to see that solutions, you know, from childcare in Sweden to you know, tackling climate change in Spain to citizens' juries in Ireland to social housing in Vienna. You know, there are huge, there are just so many solutions out there. And so, and I, so I think it's born of uh, obviously defeat, le- hopefully learning. I don't see it as a sort of manifesto. And, and in a sense, I say in the introduction to the book, you know, this isn't for the Labour manifesto, or it's not obviously for the Conservative Party manifesto, so, you know, there'll be people of all persuasions and none who maybe will look at these ideas and think, well, that, you know, that I don't like those ideas, but those might work. But the bigger idea here is to say to people, we've got to think, we're in the decisive decade on climate change. We've got massive inequalities as a country. We've got to think big about what some of the solutions are. It's interesting you sort of say if you had been prime minister, you wouldn't have had time to write the book or the inclination. Do you think you would have been able to implement as many solutions? I mean, that, that's what's remarkable about this, as opposed to a lot of what we see in politics. It's full of real policy ideas that, that could, could make a difference. I don't, I mean, look, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Did you mean, would I have been able to go as big as this book is recommending? Or? Yeah, would you actually have been able to make even a fraction of these changes? I would have been able to do some of them. Look, clearly, I would have been able to do to do some of them. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to kind of think about what history would have would have meant. I, I you know, y- yes, I would have, so- I would have sought to do some of them. But I suppose I've tried to use the, whatever it is, six years now, since losing the general election to to sort of think further about what are the things I maybe wouldn't have suggested, wouldn't have thought of. I mean, even even in the time that has elapsed since then, you know, the climate crisis is an even bigger issue, even more apparent than it was then, that the scale of the, the challenge we need. You know, I was running, it's hard to believe, but I was running for prime minister before the Brexit referendum. I think the Brexit referendum has sort of woken lots of people up to the scale of discontent that that, in part, that that referendum sort of represented. Obviously, since then, we've had coronavirus and what that has highlighted about some of the problems in the country. So, so much has changed since then. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I think some of the ideas were obviously relevant then. But as I say, I think part of my learning is maybe I wasn't bold enough in, in, in what I presented in 2015. You you tackle a number of really big issues in this, a lot of the, the problems that people face in their daily life, um, as well as sort of the big ones facing the planet. I wanted to talk through a few of them, you know, without giving the book away. Talk to us in particular about affordable housing, because that's a real concern for, you know, particularly millennials, but sort of a whole generation of people out there. I mean, it's really interesting you raise that, because I think that is, it's the second chapter of the book. And I think it's one of the, it's one of the sort of biggest unaddressed issues that we that that we face and, and and you know there's lots of things we can do to make sure that more affordable housing is built in the private sector and no doubt governments of both parties will carry on trying to do that but but I've come I've come to the view and this is partly because I spent a bit of the time out since 2015 being part of a social housing commission for the organization shelter a cross party commission baroness varsi saida varsi was one of the people on that former chair of the conservative party and I came to the view that we've got to build social housing at scale. And it's what governments of both parties used to do in the sort of 1945 to 1979 era. I look at Vienna, Austria, where they build it at scale. And it's a it's a livable, it's a sort of capital of a major European country. It, it's it's a livable city. How do they do it? How do they pull that off? Well, they, they because the 
the public sector essentially invests. And it, you know, it's really interesting. It was really interesting being on this Social Housing Commission because Jim O'Neill, another former conservative minister, formerly of Goldman Sachs, his view was that why don't we see social housing as an investment? We see it as a sort of cost, but actually it's an investment in the following sense that it it's government investing. There is a payback in terms of rents. There's a payback in terms of the economy, the construction that needs to take place. He said, look, you know, we see HS2 or transport, other transport investment as an investment, but we don't see social housing as an investment. And Jim's big point in the commission was, look, you know, we'll obviously it's got a big outlay, but we should see it as a as, as an investment. And here's the really interesting thing, Manveen, is that I don't think building social housing is just good for those who will live in social housing. If you want a functioning housing market, I came to the view that it's the backbone of a functioning housing market too, because if you want supply to meet demand, if you want to meet the government's target of 300,000 additional homes every year being built, it's very hard to see it, to see you doing it without building social housing at scale. Talk us through sort of a few few of the other things that you've looked at. I think one of the, the most intriguing revelations in this book is about you and bikes. <laughs> yes, I'm a very late in life bike rider. How I'm did very- that happen? I don't. How did it take so long? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I sort of learned to ride at the age of 12 or 11 or 12, which I think is a bit late, really. And I was never very proficient, uh, much to the sort of both amusement and uh, annoyance of my family. And and then eventually when lockdown happened, Justine, my wife, said to me, look, you just got to learn to ride a bike. And I, you know, anything that somebody else suggests, particularly one spouse, you were initially very resistant to it. And uh, I was resistant. And then I, and then we ended up in the mountain biking capital of Europe, Châtel uh, in France. And, and, and I, we hired electric bikes and I suddenly thought, God, these electric bikes are great. And so I've become a enthusiastic bike rider. Now, what's this got to do with anything in the book and big ideas? I think as we face the climate crisis, I think one of the things that's really important is to is to think this isn't just about how we tackle the climate crisis. It's about how we can make a better quality of life for people. And that's one of the things that reorienting our cities and towns around walking and cycling can do. And so there's a whole chapter uh, thinking about that issue of of cycling, walking and the difference it can make. And there are countries that do it much better than us. Actually, during the last terrible year, year and a half, we have seen in Manchester, London and elsewhere attempts to for us to improve the the ability for people to to cycle and so on. That's really interesting. Do you think this period, as bleak as it's been, do you think the pandemic has offered the sort of disruption that might make a change to things like, you know, the way you commute, but also in terms of climate change and the bigger picture there? Well, I mean, look, it's been awful. And, you know, I'm hesitant to suggest that we can learn anything. You know, I mean, we want this over with as quickly as possible. And that's the sort of way I regard it. You know, I think what is interesting is that, if you think about not just walking and cycling, but take the flexible working, for example, you know, people, some people have had the chance to work from home. Other people haven't had the chance to, to work from home. For those who have worked from home for the first time, you've got people saying, look, you know, I've, I've, I've had the chance. And there's a chapter around this issue. I've had the chance to work flexibly from home. I want to be able to carry on with this. And so I think the way I would put it to you is, you know, we've just got to learn the lessons of this crisis. I mean, we've got to, you know, there are terrible lessons to learn. And we've also got to learn about what we've gone through. And, you know, in a sense, sort of some of the, some of the changes we made in our lives and what, and what those changes might be that point us towards the future. Do you think in some ways, though, sort of having the pandemic and having, A, on the government side, the realisation that, terrible things do happen and you need the resilience in the system. You need to invest beforehand to prepare for them. And also on, on, on the side of the, of the public, the realisation that life just has to change drastically sometimes when when you're faced with huge challenges. Do you think that makes... Is it, are you more optimistic that we'll be able to make proper changes in terms of climate change? Well, I don't know, because I think this sort of cuts both ways. I mean, look, it, I, I think the way I think about it is... We've been through this terrible 18 months. Hopefully we're now coming out of it thanks to the vaccine. I think the way I, the way I compare, what I compare it, no two 
situations are the same. But after the Second World War in, in Britain, we kind of, we built something better. And I think actually what's interesting about politics is on both sides of politics, there is a sense that we want to build something better, rhetorically at least. And so I think, yes, we've got to confront the climate crisis. I think what's, I've, I, again, there's a chapter in, in the book about this. You know, I've been involved in the issue of climate change for a long time, including as climate change secretary, as you said in the introduction. And I think it's incredibly important that we tackle it and avoid the disaster that climate change presents. I think, though, we've got to also think, and this is sort of what I said what I said earlier, but I would reinforce this point. How do we also, as we tackle the climate crisis, put economic and social justice at the core of our response? In other words, you know, people... I think people can be motivated by the nightmare that we've got to avoid, but I also think we've got to motivate people by the better world we can build now as we respond to this crisis. So the jobs we can create, the homes we can insulate and make better for people, the walking and cycling, the way we can reorient our towns, the air pollution we can cut by moving to electric cars, for example. You know, I, I, I think the thing I, the view I've come to on the climate crisis is explaining the disaster that will happen if we don't act is right, but it's not going to be enough to get us to where we need to go. We've also got to present the the, be the better world we can create in tackling it. And I think that is quite an important piece of learning. I suppose the challenge for most people in politics, though, would be to show people that, you know, you talked about how this could also tackle inequalities. Climate change policy does hit a lot of people who are poorer, who might work for in fossil fuel industries. How do, you, how do you end up with a more equitable economy at the end of it while still tackling t climate change? I think that's absolutely the right question. And, and again, there are examples in the book of, P of countries that are doing it. So Spain, for example, is making sure that, you know, no fo worker in a fossil fuel industry is left behind. I mean, how do we do it? We create good jobs in the industries of the future like manufacturing wind turbines or solar panels or making the zero carbon engines of the future or doing the work, re, you know, changing the way our towns and cities work. There's so many jobs crying out to be done. And I think, and I think that is the, in a way that that's absolutely crucial. And, and the other thing I'd say is it's really important also that the jobs we create you know, just because it's a green job, it doesn't mean it's fair. In other words, it's got to be decently paid. Lots of the fossil fuel jobs, as you say, are well paid. So we've got to have like for like, you know, replacement, I think. And then, and then it's not just about people who are working in fossil fuel industries. It's also consumers. So take the electric car issue. You know, we've got to make it affordable for people on modest incomes as well as high incomes to buy electric cars. I talk in the uh, in the book about the idea of zero interest, long term zero interest loans for people, so they can afford the upfront costs of electric cars. There's issues about the charging points. So, you know, I, I think we'll only take people with us on this climate journey if it is fair, and I think it's really challenging. I think it is really, really challenging, but I think it's essential. One of the other ideas you talk about in the book, which I was very intrigued by, is the idea that perhaps we should, like countries like Bhutan, who, who already do this, sort of look at happiness as much as GDP. Um, I was very interested because that was an idea David Cameron put forward. Are, are you pinching one of his ideas? But also, he didn't, he didn't have a huge success with it. So how, how, would, you, how would you implement that in a, in a way that it would work? Well, I think it is interesting, isn't it? Because I actually say in the book, credit to, to David Cameron, my former political opponent, because he did, when he was, I think, leader of the opposition, talk about this. And when he was in government, carried it through. But, you know, it's really interesting. What, what people might watching this or listening to this might say, well, what's wrong with GDP? Well, the problem about GDP is that it measures only things where you can put a monetary value, a direct monetary value on it. And, and so it means that, you know, if you, Cut down, I say in the book, if you sort of suddenly start cut, cutting down sort of forests and, and selling and, and, you know, selling off the, the wood, you know, you get points on the board for GDP. It might not be the right thing for your society, might not be the right thing for your environment. Care is one of unpaid care work is one of the things that GDP still doesn't properly measure. It can't really measure public services properly. I think David Cameron does deserve credit for that. How do we make it so it actually has some 
if you like, impact, because GDP is still incredibly powerful. New Zealand is interesting on this. They unveiled a year or so ago a what they call a well-being budget. And that was based on a number, I think it's six indicators around mental health, child poverty, a few other indicators, sort of oriented on this notion of well-being, not GDP. So the lesson I draw, and I should make some suggestions about how we could do this uh, in the book, the lesson I draw from this is if you end up with 40-something or 50-something measures, which is where we ended up with with David Cameron, it's a step forward. But if we're honest, it's probably not going to be specific enough or focused enough to really supplant GDP. And so I think what you need is a government to say at the beginning of its term, look, here are the four or five different measures that we might say are important. So for example, you could take median income, not GDP. That's the the income of the average worker, not just the total, because GDP also doesn't tell you about the distribution of the pie. You could take some examples around well-being, like mental health and so on. You could obviously look at climate. Now, there's there's a whole plethora of indicators to choose from, but I guess you need to be focused. And I think if you are focused, it it might get you on the way. I'm not saying it gets you all. and, And the other thing, by the way, is the finance ministry led this in uh, in New Zealand. So, and 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 the the finance minister in New Zealand was a big advocate of this. You need the finance ministry, you know, in, in our case, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, absolutely the core of this. Because if they're not, then it looks like a, just a nice fluffy thing off to the side, basically. It's interesting you mentioned care workers there because that's another very intriguing chapter in your book, looking at the jobs of the future, which are obviously about to change and yet we're doing very little to prepare for that you know our education system hasn't changed the the way we train people hasn't changed talk talk us through some of the solutions you see there yeah i mean it's really interesting this isn't it that care remains and we've seen this so clearly during the pandemic care care remains a kind of we all have absolutely valued social care workers child care workers in this pandemic in a notional sense but when we look at their pay when we look at their security, they are near the near the bottom in terms of what the pay and security they're offered. I think I, I your viewers, listeners might be wondering: Does he offer a the the magic bullet solution to the social care crisis? And I I will disappoint some people by saying I don't I don't I don't. I don't. But what I think here's the thing: I think I think about uh, this. You know, we do have examples from Scandinavia and elsewhere of universal childcare. I think that is the, we talk about investment, that is the best investment we can make. You know, childcare, better childcare services for the under fives is, is, you know, it's such a cost for so many people in the UK. It holds, it, 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 if we made the investment, it would be good for opportunity. It would be good for gender equality. It would be good for women going out to work. I think it should be coupled with paid parental leave for fathers. Uh, as well as mothers, so we'll maybe get into this, use it or lose it, paternity leave, so that fathers played a proper uh, role. You know, so at the young end, if you like, I think investing in care could make a difference. And then, you know, in a sense, there are lots of solutions out there on social care, but we've got to decide as a country to invest in it and take work the workforce seriously. I think what's so striking about this is the workforce often gets left out of the account of this. We talk about how do we fund social care? Should it be free personal carers in Scotland? Should it be a cap, as Andrew Dillnot recommended? But we rarely talk about the workforce. You know, are they paid at least a living wage? Uh, you know, do we take their skills seriously? Do we take their security seriously so they're not on a zero-hours contract? I think I think putting the workforce and the, and the care workforce at the centre of this is really important. And the last thing I'd say on this, which I think is so interesting, is why is it so neglected? And I think it partly goes back to this discussion of GDP, because I think the reality is that, you know, GDP undervalues uh, the importance of, of care. Uh, it doesn't really count care properly. It's not where you're going to get the big bucks when it comes to GDP. And secondly, because it has traditionally been women's work. And I think it does reflect a sort of inherent sexism in the way we think about the economy and and what matters. And, and you know, the Prime Minister of Iceland makes this point that we think roads and bridges are a proper investment. And we think spending money on care is, if you like, a, a, a spend, just a spending item. And I think we've got to change the way we think about it. 
Everybody in Westminster was sort of spellbound last week when Dominic Cummings gave evidence for a whole seven hours. Very intriguingly, at one point, he asked, what is wrong with our system that produces an election where you're faced with an option of either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn? You're clearly very good at tackling the big problems. So what is wrong with our system and how do we fix it? I mean... Look, I, I think the 2019 general election was a unique election, actually, because of Brexit and the sort of political crisis of of, of Brexit. I mean, I suppose it depends what you mean by the by the system. I mean, my my, the, my book is making really the case that politics needs to embrace big ideas. I think, to be fair, Brexit was a big idea. It wasn't an idea I agreed with, but it was a big idea. Now that remain leave question is for me is for us settled. So I think one politics needs to. I think in a way, you know, we politicians need to level with the public about the check. I think the public get a sense that we need big change, and I think we need to be honest that there that there does need to be big change, and we need to spell that out, and then people have to make their choice about who they think can deliver that change. I think. You know, I'm not a sort of coming I won't surprise you to hear that. But I think there are issues about the way the state works. I think there are brilliant examples of what the state can do. I think there are brilliant examples of what the civil service can do. I don't I'm not I don't really sort of share the Cummings view of the civil service. But I do write in the book about our approach to the work of the state having gone through these sort of three different phases, a kind of Westminster knows, Whitehall knows best, maybe that's still there a bit, so very centralising, that certainly is still there. Uh, se- secondly, a sort of target culture under New Labour and, and also a sort of privatising outsourcing view. Now, I'm not sure, in fact, I don't believe that any of those approaches are the answers for the challenges we face. If you think about the climate crisis or if you think about the public health issues we face. We've got to have the engagement with people. So I'm I'm for devolving power much more. I'm for devolving power in England, and we're still incredibly centralised as a country in England. I'm for giving more power over to communities, more say for communities about how money is spent. Because I think, you know, I think we don't just face a crisis of our social contract, a crisis in relation to, I believe, markets having too much sway in our society, but also a democratic crisis. People think, well, does voting really make a difference? Is power so distant in Westminster that I can never get my hands on it? Take an issue like bus services. I was talking to Andy Burnham recently about some of the measures he's taking to take control of bus services in Greater Manchester. He's still prevented. He, he is taking some control, but he's still prevented by the rules uh, that are in place from running his own municipal bus services in Manchester. Now, you might think that's a bad idea or a good idea, but I think he should have that power and then the local electorate should decide. So I think part of this is about where does power lie and how much power does Westminster consume? And I think it still it still hoards too much of it. Is there a problem with a two-party system? I mean, it sort of doesn't, there's no incentive for difficult solutions to problems for policy which isn't going to be particularly popular i don't know whether the two-party system is the problem you might expect me to say that as being from one of the two parties look i think they're good ideas don't just reside in one in one political party i I think if i'm honest i think the deeper issue is this which is there was an era which was sort of 1979 when mrs thatcher took power to 2008 which is a financial crisis and i think there's a sort of broad recognition that that era marked by deregulated markets, by hoping that wealth would trickle down from the top to everybody else, that that era sort of ended and we needed, we need something else in its place. And I think, but I think what's happening is that politicians of all parties are grappling with, well, what does the, what does the something else look like? And, and I think we, and I think some of what you've seen, Brexit, Trump, other things is, is, electorates that are saying, look, this economy, this country isn't working for me. We need answers. And I suppose what I'm trying to do in a small way in my book is provide some of the answers. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Since you're tackling difficult challenges, how do you fix labour? Well, you know, after the last election, it's clearly not holding the same appeal it did with its base. The red wall has fallen. What does talk us through some of the solutions for how the party secures a future? You know, I think it lies start, first of all in starting with the condition of the country. You know, I think I think you've got to start in politics from what you see and what you believe. And I've become more and more convinced about that as 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 I've sort of grown older. You've just got to you've got to tell people, well, look, here's where we see the country. We here's what we see the country needs tackling. And you know, I mean, the what we've been through with coronavirus has shown so much about what needs to change. And we've discussed some of it, whether it's the pay of key workers or our public services, all of the issues that we've discussed. And you know, I think the right thing for Labour, and I, I believe Keir Starmer believes this too, is to set out what we believe about what needs to change about the country and doing that and then and then the electorate will make their their decision but what i definitely feel is that this desire for a different economic and social settlement for our country whether it's in housing or care or the kind of jobs we create with the green new deal i believe that can unite the traditional parts of labor's coalition you know the so-called red uh red wall and if you like the newer city-based parts of our coalition. I, I, I think that, that that those two parts of our potential coalition can be united uh, by that case and that and that vision. Why do you think those messages aren't cutting through at the moment? Why do you think vast swathes of the North, for example, are turning against Labour? Well, we had a very bad election defeat in 2019, as we discussed. And, and as Keir Starmer said when he took over, we've got a mountain to climb. We've then been through an appalling year and a bit of coronavirus. I think people's attention, and I'm sure that's true of you, Manveen, as, as well as me. You know, our attention has been on the vaccine, you know, whether we're getting the vaccine, when we can see our family and friends, when we can get back to normal. And I, and I think that is totally understandable. There will come a time when we emerge, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later, but we've got to be led by the science, when we emerge from this crisis that people will start to say, okay, well, what are we going to build for the future? And I think that's the moment when Labour needs to be ready to say, well, here's where here's where we would go. Um, I'm going to take some questions from the audience. There's one from Sao Paulo. Welcome to, to, to the audience in Brazil. I'm impressed. I am so impressed. It's the event that reaches parts others don't. This is from Rene de Paula, who asks, how do we define better world if different cultures and groups in the world have radically different view of what is good? And that is an incredibly hard question from, from, Sao, uh, from Sao, credit to Sao Paulo. I, I suppose for me, it's about saying how, you know, it's country, this is country specific, but I think there is, uh, there are some commonalities about the, the issues that many countries are facing. The climate crisis is something we are all facing together, and we are absolutely in it together, as we are with coronavirus. And we've got to act that way on both of those, on both, on both, on both issues. Uh, the inequality crisis, I don't know that much about Brazil, but I know that your deep inequalities uh, in Brazil, that is something, it's, di- it's obviously different circumstances, wholly different situation, but it's something that we're confronting here, that Brazil is confronting, that so many countries of the world are are confronting. So I think there are common factors that we are confronting and, and you know increasing technolo- technology. How do we cope with technology? How do we cope with the rise of of the technology giants? Again, I, t- I write about this in my book. You know, this is some these are these are issues that I think cross cultures. Now it is incredibly hard in the world that we live in to build unity and to build, you know, common purpose. But I think there are common causes, at least, that we face. 
But for example, there are times when you can have common challenges, you know, for example, with climate change. But actually, there are some countries in the world who still want to be growing, and they want to be doing it cheaply in the way that everybody else did. How do you, how do you bring people together on issues like that? I mean, that's such an important question to ask in the year of, of COP26 that the UK is hosting in Glasgow. And you're, you're completely right in November, and you're completely right about this. Well, here's my, I mean, my answer is developed countries have a particular responsibility. And they have a particular responsibility through a combination of aid and debt relief and trade and and sharing of technology, depending on the particular country we're talking about, to work together uh, with developing countries. And, you know, what, what's got to happen is that countries at different stages of development, emerging economies like Brazil, developing countries, countries like the UK – we we've all got to do our bit in different ways to tackle the challenges that we face and i think we can work together on this i think it's incredibly hard but there's one other thing i would say which is i think a different answer than i'd have given a decade ago increasingly it's the renewable answers that are the cheap that are the cheapest answer so they're the economic answer as well you know i think i'm right in saying that Onshore and offshore wind and solar are increasingly becoming, certainly onshore wind and solar are becoming the cheap, the, 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 if you like, the, the least cost options right across the world. And so part of this is about political will in being able to move away from the fossil fuel solutions to what is the economically right solution. And I think that is, that is different than it was, you know, as I say, a decade ago. We've got another question here from somebody who I'm guessing has actually read the book because it says... Already? Already, I know. Um, hopefully they'll buy another copy anyway. But they say, you write about citizen assemblies in your book. Can they really be useful for very complex issues that don't have a simple yes or no answer? And isn't that why what we elect politicians for? Yeah, it's interesting. And I was talking to somebody actually from the Irish Times about this earlier on because Ireland have done incredible things with citizens' assemblies. What is the role of citizens' assemblies? It's not, in my view, to replace elected politicians. I think it's a complement, not a substitute for representative democracy. And and what do I mean by that? So in the Irish case, it was citizens' assemblies on the issue of abortion and equal marriage that, if you like, gave the politicians the bravery, and you were talking about bravery earlier on, to say, okay, we can now go ahead with a referendum. We've brought together a representative sample of, of, of people in Ireland, and they say we should, you know, get rid of our very restrictive abortion laws and also legalize same-sex marriage. And it gave, it gave politicians the sort of bravery. So one, it can make, it can, it can, it's a, it's a like, a way of politicians putting their toe in the water. That sounds a bit selfish, but I think it is a way of getting the thing moving. Secondly, I think it can give people, give politicians, if you like, some of the granular on the ground view from people about how to implement change. Take climate. All over the UK, as you will know, we've got local authorities and others doing climate assemblies to think, well, what's going to work in this area? What do people want to see? How do we reconcile the needs of car owners? And people who want to ride bikes, for example. What do we do about local recycling? So I think it can provide on the ground intelligence to politicians. So I think, and thirdly, I think by opening things up, I do think it can give politicians a way of saying, look, we are letting people into this process. This is not, we're not keeping politics as a preserve just of us. So for example, giving young people say over how money is spent or giving older people say over how money is spent. Again, it's something that's being trialed in the UK. So it's not like, I'm not saying we should go back to Athens. I mean, what exactly Athens was in terms of participatory democracy is this whole nother debate, but but representative democracy stays. It's not like we abolish representative democracy, but this can also provide a a, a supplement and a really important supplement for for thickening uh, the kind of democracy we have. So it's not just once every few years voting, it's bringing people into the process. But again, sort of the examples you gave there in, of Ireland with abortion and you know opening up marriage, those are yes or no Questions. I mean, you can, can they work? Can you really have citizens' I mean, assemblies for social, social care, for example? Well, why, why not? I mean, actually, how, how do done... you get a citizens' assembly to reach any kind of conclusion? Well, let's see. I mean, look, 
you know, the politicians haven't been very good at it, have they? I mean, you know, the politicians haven't solved the problem. You know, I don't want to make a party political point on this thing, but, you know, Boris Johnson said he had a plan two years ago. They're still humming and whoring. I'm not saying that we managed to sort it either, Labour in government. You know, actually, let's consult the public. You know, I think we might find the public is more up for change, for thinking about thinking things through. It might make the politicians braver. So, so, you know, I don't think it can hurt, put it that way. I mean, look, politics is in disrepute. And, you know, the turnout of the last six general elections in the UK has been lower than at all the previous elections under universal suffrage. And I think opening up politics is, a, you know, has got to be a good thing to do. And I've said, for example, in the book that we should have a permanent one on, on, on climate. Because if I'm the climate change secretary, which sort of is now under the, the role as business secretary, I'd like to be able, a bit like we have the expert climate change committee, the CCC, which was part of the legislation I passed. I'd like to have a, a group of citizens who gather together every year or every six months to debate what we're doing, to give advice to, to, to politicians. You know, I know there's a sense, Manveen, that we elect politicians to make our decisions. And I'm not saying that sort of disappears. And Oscar Wilde was apocryphally was supposed to have said the problem with socialism is it takes too many evenings. And there's a sort of, you might be thinking this is, this is like too many evenings got written all over it. But you know, you're not forcing everybody into this, but I think, I don't think deliberation by the public, I think actually what the Irish example shows, and this is true of everybody who took part in it or most people who took part in it is I think magical things can come out of it. On the subject of how you make things open, open up democracy, we've got a question here asking, would proportional representation be a move in the right direction, particularly in local government? Well, look, I'm a supporter. I've been a long-standing supporter of electoral reform. I, I supported the AV referendum uh, uh, unsuccessfully. And we, ha- we, did, we did try it. And, and there'll be lots of people who believe in proportional representation who'll say, well, the alternative vote is not proper proportional representation and they would be right. So I'm a supporter of it. My only hesitation in this is not about whether it's, you know, an idea that should be considered and and one that I I support. It's that I don't think it's the sort of magic bullet here. You know, I think the discontent we face, part of it for some people will be my vote is wasted and so on. But I think it goes deeper than that, if I'm honest. You know, I don't think... Lots of people who don't vote in my constituency in Doncaster North are saying to me, it's because my vote doesn't count. Or, you know, it's because if I vote, you know, I mean, they might have said, you know, you're going to get in. But I don't, that's not really the main reason people give for not voting. It's all kinds of other things it's because they think politics isn't going to make a difference to their lives. So I'm not saying it can't be part of the solution, but I'm not sure it's the magic solution that some people see it as. We've got a question here asking... If the ideas in your book are so great, why aren't they already being scaled up? Good question. Well, I think because change is hard. I think it's hard to argue for. It's so it's much easier to do to carry on doing things as we've been doing them. So take this issue which we which I've touched on we haven't really talked about of a parental leave. You know, at the moment Dads get two weeks paid parent, paid paternity leave. The situation for mothers is not great either because it's, you, even though it's nine months, it's paid at quite a low rate after the six weeks, very low rate. Um, why have we, why, you know, but if you look at Iceland or Sweden or Finland or lots of other countries, they have what so-called use it or lose it paternity leave paid to fathers at a decent rate, a certain percentage of their previous salary, it makes a big difference in the role that men play. It makes a big difference to gender equality. Now, why hasn't it happened? Well, maybe the social forces haven't been strong enough to push politicians to do it. Theresa May embraced it, but as, as she was leaving uh, office, um, maybe it's because men have dominated politics. Probably it is. And women haven't been the decision makers. And that's been part of the problem. And maybe it's because we haven't... And and to be fair to Nick Clegg, it's interesting this, because he introduced something called shared parental leave, which was that the the leave that was previously apportioned to mothers could be shared. It hasn't worked, basically. The take-up is in the sort of single, very low single digits, two or three percent. And actually, this is where I think we are a bit parochial, Manveen, because we, um, if we'd looked... 
abroad, if we'd looked at, say, Sweden, they tried this in the 1970s when, as I say in the book, Nick Clegg and I were toddlers, and they tried the shared parental leave, but it didn't, it didn't work, which is why they went to this use it or lose it uh, idea. So there's different reasons why some of the ideas didn't work. Some of them are controversial, some of them are difficult, but I think changing things is always more difficult than the status quo. It doesn't mean you give up, though. You know, I think if, it's a, if an idea is good enough, you should keep going out there and arguing for it. And that's sort of part of what the book is trying to contribute to. You said earlier that the book wasn't written as a manifesto. It wasn't written to sort of um, indicate where policy should be going. But these are, you know, you have spent a while finding solutions. Are you pushing for Labour to adopt more of these as policies? Yeah, I mean, that would be good, obviously. <laughs> and is there resistance? What's 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 going on? <laughs> I would like that to happen, definitely. You know, he's got the book. He's had a nice th- He says nice things about the book. Well, we'll see at the next manifesto. You know, let's report back when it comes to the next manifesto. I mean, goodness knows. I mean, look, in a way, partly the we- reason I say that is because I'm a serving front bench politician. I'm an ex-leader. I don't want to come along and say... You know, honestly, and I say this with due humility, you know, I've got all the answers and here are all the answers. I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I'm saying here are some interesting ideas from around the world. Some people will like some of them. Some people will like all of them. Some people like none of them. And, you know, but, but in a sense, I'm partly trying to say, look, let's at least debate at the scale of these ideas. So, you know, one idea in the book is the universal basic income, which is this idea that we pay everybody as partly a replacement for social security, for, for benefits. We pay everybody a flat rate. Now, there are some people who love this idea, think it will liberate everybody. And there are some people who say this is an absolutely terrible idea for a whole range of reasons. I've put that in the book, not because I think it's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, I say, look, even going big, it's not going to happen for 10, 20 years uh, hence. But because I think there is power in this idea, power of everyone sharing in the wealth of the country, power of giving people a platform, which middle class people can often take for granted, of an income on which to stand, a, a, something to fall back on. There's different versions of this idea. You could give people a lump sum at the age of 18 as a platform on which to stand. So I guess partly it's trying to stimulate debate. People are welcome to say, look, I, I think that idea is rubbish. Um, but actually... You know, there's something, there's a kernel of an idea here, and this is where we should take it. And that's hopefully what it will stimulate. Talking of manifestos, we've got a question here from Stella, who asks, do you think there is a chance Labour can win the next general election? And to stop that being a party political, I'm going to add on to that. (laughs) Realistically, you know, looking at the challenges it faces, looking at the numbers, what, you know, what... what Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Look, Honestly, that's not a party that I genuinely believe that politics is incredibly volatile. I look, you know, I mean, it is. But you've just had a period of of real volatility. You've had a a pandemic which hasn't gone brilliantly for for Britain. And yet Labour hasn't done particularly well out of it. I know. But understandably, people have rallied around governments. And I think that's been true through uh, across the world. Look, uh, you know, that's what happens partly at a time of national crisis. Look, the reason I say this is because in 2015, on the day of the general election, Thursday, the Thursday of the general election, all of the evidence we had, which turned out to be wrong, was that things seemed to be moving in our direction. I thought I might be prime minister. I was wrong. Friday, right, I was, uh, you know, I lost. I was out. What, what have we had since then? We've had Brexit, which nobody thought would happen. We've had Trump, which very few people who nobody thought would happen. We've had the 2017 general election where people were convinced that Theresa May would win a massive majority and she didn't. And then we've had the 2019 general election where it's true Labour went down to a very bad defeat. I think anyone who looks at all that, you know, those four or five events and says, I know the future, I'm sure that the next election is in the bag for uh, the Tories, that is a, I mean, honestly, that's a mugs game. I mean, I genuinely believe that's a mugs game. I think this is, at, and, and, and I partly say that because I think, I think we will get to life after the pandemic. And I think then people will be asking, what kind of future do we want? And I think that's where it's in our hands. And in, in a sense, I suppose, partly, I think, you know, part of the, part of the sort of DNA of being a politician is optimism. And particularly if you're me, you know, after all, I lost in 2015, I carried on, I stayed in politics. I'm sort of optimistic that the world can change. 
There's a question here asking, older people tend to be more conservative and resistant to big change. So how do you get the elderly on board for the sort of big changes that you want to enact? I think that's a really good and important question. And, uh, you know, again, maybe if I had a really great answer to that, I would be prime minister. I think there is, uh, I think there's, it's definitely uh, the case that we've seen trends among older people in terms of their voting intention, which has, which has tended right, not left, particularly in the UK in the last, in the last few years. You know, that said, I mean, maybe I bring this back to my constituency because it's a sort of, it's a place I know best as, as I think about the voter, voters of my constituency. When I talk to people in my constituency, they recognise this sense of the need for change. I mean, they're not, people are not, whether they're young or old, they don't say to me, look, it's all hunky-dory, let's, and even before coronavirus, it's all, let's just carry on as we are. You know, I, I just want to sort of emphasise this point, you know, it's a former mining community, the sense that there used to be good jobs for people here, and there are still some good jobs, but so many jobs are insecure, low-paid, and don't offer the same status and recognition that we had in the past. You know, where are where is the housing, the affordable housing for people? So, so I think I think there is a sense among people, young and old, that the country does need change. And in a sense, I suppose, I suppose maybe I've got a slightly old-fashioned view about this, which is partly born of my experience. I think I think the task for politicians is to go out and say what they think. And then and then, you know, people will make up their mind. And I think people can be inspired and people can be brought along. And you know, I lots of older people, you know, many of them weren't alive at the time of the of the rebuilding after 1945, but they there is more folk memory of it. So I I think it's a good question about older people and and the way that the voting intention has skewed. But I think there is a sense, I I, I believe that people are up for for change. There's a question here asking, how do you stay optimistic given everything that's happened to you professionally and that's happened in the political sphere over the last five or six years? I mean, look, it's it's definitely challenging and I won't pretend it isn't challenging. You know, uh, I wouldn't recommend losing a general election as a political, you know, I sort of say in the book, one, one, one day, literally one day you're talking about the phone call you're going to have with Barack Obama, the next day you're grateful for a call about your PPI. You know, it's, it's, um, it's hard, but, but then I sort of think back and I think, okay, so in 1909, the minority report on the poor laws called for an NHS. And eventually it happened in 1948. You know, think of where LGBT rights were in the 1980s when I was growing up. Think of all the other big changes that have happened in our the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the end of apartheid. Big change. Big change seems impossible until it happens. And and I think that is partly why I stay optimistic. And also, by the way, this is a really important part of the book, you know, the the people who are bringing change, whether it's the people fighting for a fifteen dollar minimum wage in the United States, or the people leading the divestment campaigns from fossil fuels, or the progressive business people who are going out there and arguing for a different way of doing business, there are so many people in our society who are decent, good people trying to make change happen, and that is definitely keeps me optimistic. It has become fashionable to track back a lot of what's happened over the past five or six years to the time when you took over as as leader of the party as a butterfly wing effect. What do you make of that? Is that something you think about a lot? When I took over or when I lost? (laughs) Well, a a bit of both. When you challenged your brother to begin with and and what sort of came, you know, the changes to the Labour Party and the membership during your time as leader and then losing. So so all, all of that period. I mean, look, I, I can't tell you that I can look in my sort of crystal ball and say what would have happened, you know, if a different set of events had happened. But I think, I think it's important to understand something, which is that the changes we tend to see in our society, people definitely make a difference to them, and the the so-called butterfly effect, yeah, complete butterfly wing effect, completely. But there are deep forces, you know, it's not. It's deep forces that led to Brexit. It's deep forces. I mean, I, I wish Cameron hadn't called the the referendum. I wasn't in favour of the referendum, but 
They're deep forces that lead to it. You know, they're deep forces that lead to Trump. What was happening in the economy? What was happening in society? I think there are deep forces that led to Jeremy Corbyn actually winning in, in Labour. I don't regret changing the membership rules. I think all self-respecting parties were having uh, members electing their leaders. But I don't, I think it's, I think it's a mistake to just see, I'm, I'm not saying people don't make a difference. They obviously do. But I think it's a mistake to not see the deep structural forces that are driving what happens in our in our countries. Um, there's a question here asking, many of the nations to which you're referring have small populations, have more social consensus. How can these solutions scale up in Britain, which is divided politically still, and with a crisis of the social contract? Well, I think the crisis of the social contract is exactly right. And I think in a way, it's partly about rebuilding the social contract. Yes, it's true that some of the Scandinavian countries that we've been talking about, the Nordic countries, have relatively small populations. You know, However, I think one thing that is interesting about those countries is that they are economically competitive. They are very open economies. So they're trading nations by virtue of their of their size geography and so on i don't think you can import the lessons lock stock and barrel but if people in iceland or sweden have decent fathers leave i can't see why we shouldn't have them or decent childcare why shouldn't we have it or you know if people in vienna have decent social housing why shouldn't we have it i mean i'm not i, I don't take a sort of deterministic view that it's the circumstances of austria that you know, mean that you can have social housing. After all, we built social housing after uh, after the Second World War, governments of both parties. I don't think it's the case that, you know, it's the circumstances of the Nordics that mean they have decent leave for fathers and we can't have it. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't think it's, I don't think it's sort of written in the DNA of the country that that's going to be the case. And that that's, of course, of course, particular circumstances have an impact, but I don't think it's it's quite as deterministic as that question implies. Just to highlight the difference between those countries and Britain. Finally, we've got a question here asking, should we despair about democracy? It's very hard to live in England and feel hopeful and cheerful about such a strange future being hostile to all our neighbours. I don't think we need to be hostile to our neighbours. And actually, I don't think I don't think a post-Brexit, the post-Brexit settlement for Britain needs to be hostile to our neighbours. I think we can... Look, the, the, the truth is that if you take any problem that I talk about in this in this book, or, or, or certainly the major problems, you need to cooperate internationally, whether it's the climate crisis or making sure big companies are paying their taxes or making sure the technology giants are kind of brought to heel. You've got, you know... You've got to cooperate across across borders, and I absolutely believe. And and you know, I know many people, particularly on the Remain side of the argument, feel very despairing. But I believe that we can build a a, a sort of positive, optimistic, outward looking future for Britain. And and in a sense, you know, why not? I mean, we we are where we are. We have moved past. I, said earlier, move past the Remain Leave issue. But it doesn't mean to say we can't build strong alliances, not just with the United States, but with uh but with our European with our European friends. And certainly what I know is that we can't tackle any of the challenges we face unless unless we do it. So there are many reasons to be optimistic and cheerful. And and just the final thing, just I want to underline this point because sometimes people say, oh, being leader of the opposition must have been a rubbish job and so difficult and so on. And sometimes I proved how difficult it could be. But here's the thing. I actually think I came out of that job with a with a more positive view of the British people than I went into it in the sense of all the people I would meet, all the people who would come up to me in the street, all the people who still do come up to me. Now, okay, if people think you're so-and-so, they probably don't come up to you in the street. But, you know, Actually, it makes you optimistic. It makes you optimistic. There are so many good people struggling to make the world a better place, locally, nationally, internationally. Uh, it's not often in this era that we get to end on an optimistic note. So thanks for that and for everything else. Thanks for talking through all of that. And thanks to Ed Miliband there and also to the audience, all of you, wherever you are. Particular shout out to, to Sal Paolo and to everyone else Definitely. who sent in questions. And thanks very much to Intelligence Squared and Penguin Live for hosting this event. And thanks again for joining us. Have a very good evening. Thanks so much. What are you doing right now? 
Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.